Welcome to the 157th episode of Reverse Rep Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. Happy 70th birthday to Daryl Hare, the Australian umpired in 78 tests, with one of them being the only forfeited test in cricketing history after he accused the Pakistan team of ball tampering. Welcome to the podcast that doesn't quite share his appetite for controversy. You really get the sense with umpires that there are kind of two schools of thought. There are those who go into umpiring because they really want to be the centre of attention and there are those who go into umpiring because they really don't want to be the centre of attention and it's quite clear which uh, of those particular camps Daryl Hare um, fell well, into. There has often been that feeling across sport that the officials who you don't notice are generally the ones doing the best job because if you're not talking about the umpire, referee, linesman or whatever, they're generally being so but seamlessly is that, efficient. Is, 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 that, is, that, is that true of cricket though? Because it's very rare. I mean, there's such a small group of test umpires and they're all quite recognisable in their own way, whether it's because of, you know, arthritic fingers or the way that they, <laughs> you know, give give people out or because they, you know, like the kind of dicky bird just because they're loved by the players. Somehow cricket umpires all seem to get some kind of a reputation yes, it's true. somehow all... or a sort of real sense of personality yeah that is true we have all maybe you're right because they are a sort of a small a small uh, a small elite crew we do build up a sort of sense of each of them you know, anyway we're going we're going off track we're going off agenda and our agenda um for today is um andy's been watching the rain i've been watching a play um we're gonna be um meeting meeting a new friend called Sammy in from the archives and we're going to be reviewing bat ball and field the elements of cricket by John Hotton John Hotton's uh, new book published just a couple of uh, months ago um so Andy it's uh, it's it's late September and you've been optimistically trying to get some more cricket in for the rest of the season it's that time of the year where you look back and you regret that you didn't make it to as many days as you wished. Um, and this was a day that I did make it to, uh, but unsuccessfully. So this was the first day of the final test between England and South Africa, and the forecast was inconclusive. So all the weather apps were showing the dreaded grey clouds mm-hmm. and raindrops, but the percentages were actually quite low. And walking down unrained on to the Oval, I thought maybe we'll get away with it. 10 minutes before play was set to begin, I put sun cream on and that, that was cursed it. it. That cursed it. The weather gods, you know, affronted by my gross hubris, responded almost immediately. Um, and within minutes, the three of us were huddled under a single, fortunately quite large, golf umbrella. Um, there are few grounds, um, I mean, I'm happy to be corrected by some of our international listeners, um, that are great, I think, to be rained on. But mm. the Oval is really not very good because unlike Lords, where I think there are some you know, slightly nicer covered sections, you really are just stuck under a pretty gloomy underpass. So we managed just a single pint there before saying, look, let's, let's retreat. Um, and we headed to a curry house and then the pub. We were there, obviously, with lots of other fans, and every time the weather cleared, there was this sense of, you know, oh, a pitch inspection, maybe. <laughs> as soon as the inspection was scheduled, the heavens opened again. There's also that thing um, of seeing the, you know, you see the a couple of groundsmen walk on, and suddenly everyone's anticipating maybe this is the moment, maybe something's happening, and of course they're just stretching their legs or, you know, going for a private bitch about their colleagues or something. But, but the whole ground is sitting there fixated on what's happening on the pitch or staring at the sky and suddenly you become expert in the kind of different gradations mm. of the rain and you're kind of going, is it raining slightly less now than it was a couple of minutes ago? You never are quite so fixated on the weather as when you're sitting there in the ground staring at it. Well, 
it puts you in the rather odd position that I think by about sort of 2.30, 3 o'clock, we were almost willing on just a conclusive downpour because it's almost better to just be told be to it's done, up. we're finished, yep. than to be sort of teased again and again with the prospect of play. Um, but I wouldn't write the day off as a failure because ultimately anyone who watches cricket knows that it's only sort of a part of why you go to the cricket. And, you know, I had spent the day with um, uh, you know, three good friends, all known to you, who, um, so, you know, one of whom had travelled up from the southwest for the for, mm. to watch no cricket. For the privilege of um, sitting. And actually it's a very <laughs> liberating thing to um, take a day off from work to go to a curry house and the pub. So, and, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't do that under other circumstances. So I guess I can, I guess I can a thank you. A day the, well uh, spent. That. yeah so, so that that was sort of um events at the oval um but you've been seeing a play at lords i have been seeing a, a, a play at lords from the um comfort of my of my sydney home so um i was reading in the ft recently a preview of a play called stumped to play by the playwright Shomit Dutta. Um, apologies, I have probably mispronounced um, that name. Um, it's inspired by the story that apparently, and I never knew this, but it's a wonderful story. Apparently, Samuel Beckett told an act, an actor who was acting in in Waiting for Godot that they should think of Vladimir and Estragon, the the two um, characters in in Waiting for Godot, that he should think of them as two batsmen padded up and and waiting to go in. And um, this is the kind of um, jumping-off point for this uh, this play called called Stumped. It's a it's a play about um, uh, Samuel Beckett and Harold Pinter waiting to go into bat. So it's a it's a two-hander, and they're just sitting there as the game goes on, waiting to go into into bat. Um, usually, when I read about these things in the newspaper that are happening in London, I just um, get get pangs of regret and aren't able to see them but thankfully this is actually um being streamed online it was filmed at lords fittingly um so i've had a chance to, to watch a bit of it admittedly the time i had a chance to watch a bit of it my my young son then woke up and um, foiled my attempts to watch the rest of it but that will happen at some point over the next little while it's a really fun it's a really fun fun play in terms of the references it makes to the works of both authors um but also we get to know through the prism of cricket the kind of characters of these two very different people back at the kind of aloof intellectual and and pinter much more much more down to earth and there's that wonderful sense i think that you get and this is what makes sense of that waiting for god anecdote that that moment where you're waiting to go into bat that sort of limbo is a real kind of liminal state where you can't do anything else a bit like sitting watching the rainfall at a cricket ground you Mm. can't really do something anything else and you're sort of sitting there doing nothing but yet doing something and you're always in anticipation, but you're never quite fulfilling that anticipation. There's this wonderful, it's a really wonderful idea and a really wonderful frame for a, for a play, actually. I've always been quite fond of this genre of plays that kind of takes possible conversations that may or may not have happened between sort of famous figures. I always think they're such a fun kind of intellectual conceit. And I think it must be so much fun for a playwright, as you say, to make the reference to their works. Um, I wondered with this whether we there may I, I hope it gets the chance for sort of a bigger airing because I similarly read about it and I thought you know it'd be a lovely thing to have done a slightly longer run yeah. at Lords and, and taken or taken it on tour you know, somewhere. Right. And also you think during the um, we're we're sadly uh, in the UK, at least about to enter the kind of long, grim, cricketless months, at least, you know, not cricket on our shores. So this play sounds like it would be a a lovely um, 
uh, a, a lovely alternative to keep um, to keep spirits going. Did it? What you did have the chance to see? Mm. Did it kind of change the way you felt about either Beckett and Beckett or Pinter? Well, to be honest, I don't think. I mean, I've read a bit about them, but I don't really feel like I know them as people. And I think that's one of the aims of this play is to really kind of bring them alive as characters as people who you might sit on the boundary and, and and kind of talk to so in that sense it was very effective of course the they, they are words put into these characters mouths and sentiments put into these, these characters mouths so there's some kind of creative license there but apparently the play, playwright did actually know um i think i think pinter so that's kind of based on some based on some knowledge there it is by the way available on um original theatre online or one word dot com should you be um, interested in checking it out which i would very much recommend from the archives and in this episode toby is going to be telling the story of a man who played for test teams at both ends of the pacific so there are some uh, well-known examples of uh, cricketers who have played test matches for more than one nation. Recent examples, Kepler Vessels, Boyd Rankin being being obvious ones. Um, but the other day, and I actually can't quite remember why, I was looking at a list of, a complete list of cricketers who have um, played for two different nations. And there are in fact 15 in total going back to the middle of the middle of the 19th century. And looking down that list, there were several names that I did recognize, but several also that I, I had never come across before. And there was one in particular that caught my eye. And the reason that it caught my eye was for no other um, particularly good reason other than I had no idea how to, how to pronounce it. Um, so in this from the archives, I want to um, introduce you to my new friend, Simpson Gian. Um, G-U-I-L-L-E-N. I've been YouTubing the pronunciation of his name, so apologies to the Gian family if I haven't got that right. He was also known as Sammy, um, so I'm going to call him Sammy for the for the purposes of this. He was um, he was born in 1924. He was brought up in in Trinidad and Tobago um, in the West Indies, and he was. Uh, very much immersed in cricket from a young age. He's from this astonishing cricket kind of dynasty, I suppose. His father played for Trinidad and then became a test umpire. He had a brother who played representative cricket. Um, his grandson actually recently played in the Under-19 Cricket World Cup representing the Netherlands. And his wife was a competitive wicketkeeper as well. So this is really kind of cricket in every single possible branch of um, the Gian family. Um, he had a fairly, what seems like a fairly unremarkable early um, career. You know, this was a career in the in the 30s and 40s, and there just aren't many records of his early his early career, which indicates that he wasn't setting setting the world alight. But he was in 1951 called up as a replacement for the injured um, Clyde Walcott for a tour of uh, Australia and New Zealand for a West Indies Test tour of Australia and New Zealand, and. You know, getting called up for one's test debut is a life-changing moment, I'm told. I haven't experienced it myself. Um, but for him, it was um, life-changing in more ways than one. Because he went on the tour to Australia. That was all well and good. They then went over to New Zealand. And during the tour of New Zealand, he loved the place so much that while he was there, he said, I'm going to move here. And sometimes we go on holiday to places, we fall in love, we think, yes, we're going to move to blah, and then it never happens. But just a few months later, he uprooted and he moved from the West Indies to New Zealand. 
I wonder if it's, I mean, there's probably a very interesting list of players who've taken a similar path in the sense that a tool gives you an opportunity to see somewhere that, you know, the rest of your life would never have done so. And, and I think that, you know, I guess we see it a bit in the UK, I guess, famously with a lot of the cold plaque cold pack players where a South African who gets the experience to spend time in England actually says oh this is quite good mm, mm. Um, but it is interesting that thing of cricket or sport more generally giving you exposure to a place that you know you might not have thought of or you might not have particularly thought you would like and, what and a, suddenly as you say changing the course of your course of your life what a contrast though to what we are told about the way that touring happens you know nowadays where it's very much you see the inside of a, of a hotel room and, and the touring experience is all about replicating home whereas clearly Mm. there's a real and obviously you know they were spending much much longer on the ground and the tours were kind of more i suppose informal in a way but it does give an indication of the extent to which you could kind of get to know a place and the people um the people in the place um so he moved to uh new zealand in 1950 in 1952 um at that time you had to have been living in the in the kind of new country in your new place of residence for at least four years before you were qualified to then play for that um, country so that was the I mean it wasn't the ICC at that point but that was the kind of governing body's rules about about qualifying to play international cricket for a particular country um, and however it was three years later three years after he'd moved there that he first won a test cap for New Zealand as a as a, as a keeper batsman and interestingly it was in the next tour that the West Indies had of New Zealand. So he ended up playing against many of the um, players with whom he had toured New Zealand just a few years uh, before on that on that fateful on that fateful tour. What's interesting here is that the the West Indies team don't seem to have, even though they would have known presumably that he hadn't actually reached the qualification kind of milestone to play for New Zealand. The West Indian, Indian team didn't seem to raise any objections to that. Um, certainly, um, Sammy was was very worried about how the West Indian players would view him, this question of whether he would be a kind of seen as a bit of a turncoat for having turned his back on uh, on them, but but he wrote in his autobiography the wonderfully entitled Calypso Kiwi. Um, he said that when I came out to bat, all the West Indian boys gathered round, raised their caps, and raised three cheers. Words can't explain how I felt, and you can imagine that must have been a pretty powerful moment for him, surrounded by all these old friends, kind of worried if they were going to be thinking that you know he'd spurned them and they would turn their back on him, and in fact they're kind of happy for him. I think there must be a lot in all these instances that comes down to the specifics because we know in more recent history that um, South African origin players who've gone on to play for England have often had yes. pretty rough receptions exactly. from the South African team. Exactly the point you make around sort of being seen as a turncoat or being seen as someone who felt they were too good for South Africa or whatever. And I wonder, I mean, I'm I'm guessing here, but I wonder if in the context here there was a feeling that perhaps he was unlikely to ever be a natural selection in the West Indies team yep. and that they saw him as someone who had yep. you know, gone and taken a great opportunity and, and, and gone on. And maybe there's also still at this time, reasonably early in the context of West Indian international cricket still, that there was also a sense of pride that players were going off and, and making their mark elsewhere in the world. And I think, in, I think that's a really good point. Perhaps in opposition to that model of, say, those, those kind of cold pack players, there is a, um, or oh, sorry, those those South African players who, who have gone who have gone overseas. The fact that he moved to New Zealand not in order to open up new opportunities in cricket and career, but for purely personal reasons, he just fell in love with the place and said, "This is where I want to live." And it's kind of hard to 
begrudge that he wasn't doing it to try and you know advance his his career in any in any particular way um so in some senses it feels like this story has come full circle he's moved to new zealand um and then the west indies team have come and um have come and kind of played against him and sort of you know um uh, sort of, uh, you know, approved of almost that that um, that transition he's made, but um, the story has another kind of twist to it, um, which is that in March 1956, um, at the end of that series, New Zealand were yet to ever win a test. Um, they finally did win a test, and they won a test because Simpson Gian took the stumping that defeated the West Indies, his old team, and he was Al Valentine who was batting, um, and through that was what sealed the um, the first ever victory in a Test match for um, for New Zealand, which is again a kind of beautiful moment of serendipity. There, you couldn't have written. We that. assume. We assume that on this occasion there were fewer cheers from the West Indian players. You 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 would assume there's actually it's the the stumping is, well, there's a rather wonderful picture of the stumping actually that still that still exists. You can kind of Google it. In fact, if you Google Simpson guy and it's the, um, Gian, it's the it's the it's the picture that kind of come comes up uh, most frequently. Um, so by this point he played five Test matches for the West Indies. He played three Test matches for New Zealand, all against the West Indies. Um, he was 32. He was in good. health. Health, he must have assumed that he would go on to have a, you know, relatively. He was a bigger fish in the New Zealand pond than he was in the West Indian pond. To your point, to your point earlier, must have assumed he would have gone on to play a few more Test matches. But he never did claim another Test cap. He actually went on a on a New Zealand tour of England. He wasn't selected. It's not quite clear why, but there are some kind of mutterings in his autobiography about the selector somehow being being set against him, which is a slightly kind of sour note on which his his cricketing career ends. Although he did go on and play for. For Christchurch, quite a lot. This debate never goes away, does it? I mean, there's always that feeling, and pretty much every test team has it to some degree or, n- or another. This feeling of you know rewarding the development of truly, you know, these definitions all get fuzzy, but truly homegrown players versus uh, players who've moved there. And I, I think it's a debate that's sort of as live as alive today as it as it was then. Mm, exactly. I mean, there is a kind of certain irony to the fact that he. It was him who secured New Zealand's first, you know, that that stumping secured New Zealand's first ever test test victory, and then he he kind of gets a little bit little bit spurned after that, which has a certain sort of irony to it. Going back to that question of why it was that the West Indies team were so kind of gr- glad to see him when they went and toured, and he was playing for um, New Zealand. Um, a lot of accounts of his life will talk about the fact that he was a bit of a kind of joker and a raconteur. He sang calypso throughout his life. He never quite lost his. Um, he never quite lost his West Indian roots. When Everton Weeks, the um, great West Indian keeper, was asked what he what he remembered of of, of Gian, he recalled a moment during that tour of New Zealand when he walks onto the MCG as a night watchman. So playing for the West Indies, he walks onto the MCG as a night watchman and he doesn't have his bat in his hand. And no one's quite sure whether that was intentional or not, whether he was doing it for laughs or not. But certainly there was a beautiful sense that this was a man who was a character that kind of everyone wanted the wanted the best for. The review, and for the 157th episode of Reverse Swept Radio, we've been reading Bat, Ball and Field, The Elements of Cricket by um, John Hutton, published in July uh, of this year. Um, He is, uh, John Hutton is known to many cricket fans as the writer of the old batsman blog, 
He has appeared several times on this podcast. He wrote The Meaning of Cricket, which we reviewed back in episode 102. And we interviewed him in episode 37, which was almost a decade ago. Does that make you feel old? During which he declared that 50 over cricket should have ended with MS Dhoni's six to win the World Cup for India. Um, the book is a... So this current book, Bat, Ball and Field, is a series of essays on the game, loosely organised with a batting section first, then a bowling section, then a, and a fielding section. Um it's intended, or it states its intention, to be an introduction to those new to the game. And he does it succeed in that, in being an introduction for those new to cricket. We're the wrong audience, in some ways, to answer that question. And I, I meant and failed to um, ask my wife to have a go at the book and almost sort of give me a, a kind of novice's assessment. My um, thought is that it probably is still a little bit too uh, that at times it probably falls a bit between two stools so it tries to give you an introduction to the game but I think for someone who is a genuine novice I think would still find this hard going and I think the slight challenge with the ambition of being an introduction is that some of the essays particularly a few of the early ones don't perhaps plunge as deep as you would like um, for those of us who've read a fair bit about the game I don't want to come across as overly negative because Hotton is the kind of writer who could write thrillingly about a trip to the shop. So, you know, even if it's an essay where you feel, you know, ho-hum, this is slightly familiar ground, it, it's still a very compelling read. Do you, do you think that it doesn't, that it's kind of um, not suitable, as it were, for, for the entry-level reader because it's too technical? I remember a book um, that I think is still out there called What is a Googly or something yeah. like that, which which was a, a very, I seem to remember, which was very successful, which was, uh, I remember someone giving a copy of this book to my mum when she found herself with you know, two cricket-loving sons to sort of try to make sense of it all. And that really did a, a kind of back to basics, how does the game work? And for any of us who've tried to explain cricket to someone when we're watching the game, I think you probably do need that approach at the start and, and but, I, I have but, to say but, but, I might be talking rubbish you know maybe yeah. maybe this book maybe this book could work for a novice maybe if you were challenged and you thought about it it could work but I just wonder whether it, if, if you really want to write an introduction it has to be a bit more basic but this is where I think I would sli I'd slightly disagree with you because it well I agree with you that what it doesn't do is say there are three stumps with two bales on top of them and you mm. know I mean it does actually talk about the length of the pitch and why that's interesting um but what I like about it is it kind of um, draws back the curtain on the some of what on a deeper level makes cricket kind of significant and makes the game work. Um, you know, for instance, there's this, you know, wonderful um, discussion, I suppose, of um, why we're drawn to, to certain batsmen and why we're I did, drawn to the idea of batsmen and these individuals who are pitting themselves against, you know, teams of bowlers and, and fielders and you have this one batsman standing against them and the way that the greatest batsmen succeed on absolutely being individuals and Hotton talks about the kind of individualism of, you know, the batsmen who have kind of changed the 
um, change the, the the game. You know, this idea, as he says it, that they had a way of imposing themselves on the game that went beyond simply their skill with the bat. And what I like is that if you were to be introducing someone to, like earlier in the, this this episode, we were talking about waiting for Godot. You wouldn't necessarily talk to them about the mechanics of the play. You talk to them about the themes that underlay what was coming through and you'd hope that a kind of intellectual audience even though they didn't know theatre would be able to kind of engage with that Mm. and I think that's a lot of what he's trying to do here he's like saying that actually it doesn't really matter that there I mean he again as I say he does as I was about to say it doesn't really matter that there are six balls in and over he does talk about there being six balls in and over and why that's um, significant but he does it on it's not a fact for a fact's sake Mm-hmm. it's a kind of introduction more to the um, what is it that makes cricket special and the elements of cricket special and why the hell are we also attracted to this thing not just sort of how does it work I, I, and I should say I think it's a worthwhile it's an important attempt because I can also see that there are lots of people who would find as you said the much more back to basics thing very off-putting I, I guess I think uh, and again I'm not the right audience. We, we really need to try this for someone who is starting from we that position. We need a position. guinea pig. We need a guinea pig. We need, we need a, a volunteer. Pig, exactly. You're probably not listening to this podcast if you're <laughs> not interested in cricket. Well, exactly. And our listeners <laughs> are probably not find, the right. We, we need to find someone who isn't. Because I, I sometimes think that what you're talking about in terms of the deeper meaning of the game or you know perceived meanings of the game is hard to appreciate unless you've spent quite a lot of time with it. You know, yeah. if an author sort of tells you this is what batting means or can mean, it's maybe hard to relate to unless you've spent that time either in the film or not. But but I, I don't want us to toot yep. because what what I should say he's, he 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 is a great writer and he's a great essayist. And mm-hmm. I think one thing that I I did really want to touch on is this idea that we often think of the essay formers you know, so-and-so on so-and-so. So, you know, you take a topic, you have a hypothesis. And one thing that is wonderful here is the sheer variety of forms. And I think just to touch on a few of them, he, there is an essay here later on on W.G. W. Grace, the bowler. And I think this is just such a wonderful trick in terms of an unexpected angle on a familiar subject. I mean, you mm. see the name W.G. And those of us who've read a reasonable amount about the game, you know, we slightly say, yeah, 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 been there, done that. I learned a huge amount in this piece and it really made me th- rethink WG and it's just that courage as an essayist to say that topic you think you know everything about, yep. you don't. Yep. Yep. Um, and I thought that was really kind of a courageous idea. I found that similarly on on, on the question of bowling, I found the um, chapter, as it were, essay on um, Michael Holdings over to uh, Jeffrey Boycott, that infamous over that we all you know have heard about. Mm. It's in the legend of of cricket, but Hotton kind of takes each ball and extrapolates out from each ball to to draw the kind of context around you know what had come before, but also what what this kind of moment meant in a way that was very um, powerful and kind of enabled me to to encounter that with new um, with a kind of new appreciation. Well, what's interesting, particularly about that essay, is that Hotton has just released a book with Jeffrey Boycott, focused on sort of reflecting on Boycott's career in detail. And I thought right. reading that essay, and I thought, given how good that was, I thought that book is is, is probably going to be a treat. Um, you know, we could talk about lots of them. I mean, I, I do just want to pull out the, the essay he writes on cricket and sadness, where he talks about myth-making and cricket writing. And I think what was so clever about this and so humble about this 
is his starting point was an incident when Alan Butcher fed back on an article that Hotton had written about Sylvester Clark, and Butcher said Clark was nothing like what you wrote. Mm. And I thought there was a wonderful sort of humbleness and kind of courage for Hotton to be like, I got this wrong, this is why I got it wrong, and the reason I got it wrong is important for mm. cricket mm. writing. Mm. You know, it's important that we as cricket writers understand that... Um, Sorry, I'm grouping myself. Anyway, we we as people who think about the game realise that we create these players in a way that can often be a long, long, long way from the reality. They exist in our minds differently from how they exist in their minds as well. There was actually one thing I wanted to ask you, which was he makes a really interesting um, point about uh, Shane Warne and the ball of the century and the fact that so many of the narratives around that were that that ball kind of came out of, you know, Warren having a horrible tour and Graham Hick, you know, goes after him in that tour game beforehand. Mm. And then the Aussies drop him so that gassing England's best player of spin doesn't play him in the next tour game. And then I've always assumed that that was this kind of thing of, you know, Warren was having a tough time and then out of nowhere, the ball of the century comes. And Hotton's analysis, or as he presents it, like actually the kind of truth of the matter, is that that was all intentional on the Aussies' part. That actually he was instructed, Warren was instructed to only bowl leg breaks, bowl no variations against Hick and get hit all over the park so that England thought he is a pretty you know ordinary leggy and then they didn't drop him against Gatting they just didn't want Gatting to have a look at him so it was a complete surprise when England's best bowler of spin was then you know put in a position of vulnerability did that narrative come as a surprise to to you that's the first time I've kind of heard about that I think I'm so in awe of that Australia team of the 90s that I just I I'm willing to buy them yeah of course (laughs) (laughs) but but it's an interesting even when it went horribly wrong it was intentional well, exactly. And again, it's another good point of when Hotton is, is, is putting a new angle on a new angle on these things. He also quotes um, a club teammate of Warm's who laughed and just said, you know, you think that's the ball of yeah. the century. So he we, he we did it every, every week. week. He did that every yeah. week. And then it just happened that Gatting was, was facing it. So there are all these great stories. Were there other kind of stories and anecdotes that, that jumped out at you from the... Book well, we should, while we we're share, on the topic of Shane Warne, I'm not going to read the whole section because it, it, it's reasonably long, but I was astonished to read the section on Shane Warne's mural, which includes, uh, he had painted for by a sort of artist friend and includes all his friends and figures who he admired. And imaginary sort of chilling, yeah, Right, and sort of relaxing by a swimming pool. I think that's, that's well worth it. Um, I also really enjoyed... Um, and this came in a footnote, but it was Jack Russell's um, confident assessment that on the ball when Brian Lara went past uh, Sober's test record, Lara actually brushed the stumps with his back foot, which I thought mm. was such a lovely kind of detail that only a wicketkeeper could spot. And, you know, we probably have to trust trust uh, Jack on that. Were, were there any others for you? There, there, there were lots of little... It, it, it's full of nuggets, isn't it? It really is full of nuggets. There was the interview with the, with the bat maker who kind of makes the point that one day there will be a disease, a kind of Dutch elm type disease that wipes out all of the willow trees and suddenly that the game will be in disarray because we can't make the bats and that the bats that we have are obviously so central and exactly what willow brings to bats is so central to the fabric of the of the game and again it's these kind of um all of these different kind of ways into the game which i think i mean going back to the what we were talking about originally you know this question of if you're if you're new is that kind of too much information or or is it kind of a, a kaleidoscope of different perspectives that that allow you to see the game from 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 different angles but but either way i think whether you're new or whether you're looking for a kind of um 
fresh view on on cricket i think it's definitely it's definitely well worth a um well worth a read so that's bat ball and field the elements of cricket by john hotton and that was the um 157th episode of reverse web radio leave us a review tweet us at reverse web if you look at looked at our twitter account recently I'm dreadful with it. Uh, infrequently. Yeah, okay. We're, well, listen, we're not. We're not. Tweet us. We're not social media. And then we'll demons, have a reason. But... Then we'll have a reason uh, to look at it. Tweet us, but then also write us a letter to tell us you've sent us a sent us a. Tweet. <laughs>